Okay, Father, we just thank you so much for gathering us here. And in the Redwoods, my favorite thing in the whole world. So thank you for this beautiful place. Thank you for Sarah and Josh opening up their home and being so hospitable, God. And Lord, we ask you um, for the grace to receive whatever it is you want for each of us to receive. Lord, we just come with open hearts, with open hands, with open minds, and um, and we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Uh, and I pray now that you would um, just pour out your grace on us because you're such a wonderful, loving Father um, who feeds us with everything that we need. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Okay, so this is called a workshop, but as God started putting it together, I thought, so the workshop part is, you know? So <laughs> there's, there's just, um, there's content, and then we'll see how far we get, and, and I think the workshop part of it might actually end up being, in addition to this, where we get online, where we get together for coffee, where we plan a lunch or a breakfast or something, and we start hashing out, um, there, there's going to be applications and things from today, but but where God wants you to go with any of what you hear today. And I just have been praying that you will hear what God has for you to hear, not what he has for anybody else to hear, you know, and that's what you're going to walk away with. So this really actually, you know, I said it's part two of, I don't know if I should call it a workshop or we should call it a series on helping children um, come into a, a relationship with the living Jesus, right? And we're going to talk about why that's so critical. Um, so th these are the things that I think we're going to go towards. We're going to add um, some additional perspective to our high view of parenting, which is something interesting for me. After going over high view of parenting over and over and over, and it just keeps getting higher, and I go, this is really high. Like we are like at the Himalayas, and then God will say, well, did you remember this part? You <laughs> took a step higher. So that's what I'm inviting you into, is just a higher than a higher view of um, parenting that acknowledges family and church as one unit. Um, together, they're together as God's plan for the spiritual formation of children. So that's a new element that I feel like God's bringing in. Um, we're gonna focus on some brain science um, to give us insights on what the priorities should be in family and church to make a smooth path for your child to come to love God, not just know about him. And we're gonna lay out some specific suggestions for you to consider what should be taking place in the family and in the church on behalf of the spiritual well-being of your children um, and then we'll see you know if we have some discussion if it doesn't happen now it's going to happen very soon and um, I want to save time so that we can actually have some communion together which is something God told me to do we've not ever done a workshop together so I know that's his idea all right so here we launch in all right so the two primary God-ordained environments for the spiritual formation of the next generation are the family and the church. If those two God-ordained spiritual formation centers are weak or worldly compromised, the devil gets to wreak havoc on the earth. If one is strong and one is weak, God's purposes on earth are stifled in a whole generation. 
The family is responsible to be the flowing stream of spirit, Holy Spirit empowered children to grow up in the church, to ignite and carry on revival in their generation. The family is the stream that brings in the children, the Holy Spirit empowered children that are to meet revival, hopefully, if not be the ones who will ignite revival in a stalled out generation and carry it on um, in, their, in their generation, right? Revival, um, as we would call a mighty presence of God permeating men's lives and tangibly manifesting the miracle working power of God. That's how I would define revival. I didn't know what other word to use. I mean, is it revival? Is it awakening? Is it just the norm of what God wants? But you know what I mean by revival, okay? So it's, it's, it's God, the presence of God permeating men's lives and tangibly manifesting the miracle working, miracle working power in people, right? It's to be an ongoing phenomenon on the earth. Now you look at the history of the church. You look at the history of what of moves of God and they ebb and they flow and they rise and they fall, right? It's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to ebb and wane. The strong families raising up the children in God's power and wisdom and security, that reality is supposed to sustain, create and rise, raise up revival and sustain it, right? So the church, made up of God's present and upcoming generation, together. Present generation, that's us, the upcoming generation, our children, right, is responsible to empower families. The church, they're, the part of this union, is to be responsible to empower families to raise up children on the home front to be healthy, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, in every way we could call that kind of a circle of of sustained life of revival on the earth right so it's god's design for thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven this is his design we can acknowledge the formational powers on children's lives of schools of friendships of sports teams of apprenticeships you know, et cetera, et cetera, scouts, all. So, but those are all man-designed. They're social structures, not ordained or mandated by God. They're totally optional and non-essential for God's purposes. The family and the church are, on the other hand, God-designed and God-ordained, and they are his supernaturally empowered environments for establishing his presence on earth, the family and the church. Establishing his presence on earth with his plans and covenant promises, undergirding and defining the reason for their existence. You have covenant promises, God's plans undergirding and defining the reason for your existence as a family and for church, the existence of church. We need to think of family and church as two domains with a single purpose that together through the work of the Holy Spirit, have the power to accomplish the high and holy purposes of God in the formation of each generation. We actually need to stand in both, in awe, in awe, you guys, of both family and church as creations of God. 
What an incredible privilege God has given us and what an incredible responsibility. He's given us both the privilege and the sense of, of, of responsibility to make us both the mentoring of the eternal souls of God that he's brought into the world through us and to establish his church on earth and to make both of those our passionate priority during our lifetime. It's not just one or the other, it's both and. Our Savior, our King, our Master, our Lord died that every individual life could be freed from the power of sin and carry and release his glory on the earth. And he intended for this to be accomplished in godly families. He also died to replicate the fullness of his life through his redeemed children all together, who together make up his beautiful bride, the church. He died for both. They're, they're a unit. Right? I'm asking you to consider a high vision for the culmination of everything God wants accomplished in your families that is designed ultimately to glorify Christ in his church, the bride. Right? You've got to, it isn't just about raising up your children. It, it, is, it is about the kingdom of God. It is about the presence of God on earth. In LOE Parent Coaching, we've talked off and on about the benefit of sidestepping um, age-graded, age-segregated segregation, right, in the local churches for our children. And we've touched on a few ways to have the church experience being family-centered. We've talked about that in different parent classes or workshops or whatever, right? But we've just dabbled pragmatically about the edges of the powerful connection between the spiritual nature of family and the full expression of Christ's church and how that plays into our lives. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, and God placed all things under Christ's feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church. It all aims there. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what if family is designed by God to be the source of an endless flow of young, spirit-filled, single-minded lovers of God to make up the church of Christ in each generation, passing the baton of revival in an unbroken fashion until the Lord returns? Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> We've talked about the revelation that the family education mountain of culture is the headwaters for all of culture because every person on earth comes through a family and a process of training and maturing, right? Before becoming influencers in all the other areas of culture. We've acknowledged that when we clean up the headwaters of family, eventually all the areas of culture downstream will clean up. Just makes sense. So that includes the church. The family and the church are designed by God to not just walk side by side in the spiritual formation of children. They're to be an extension of one another, both nurturing the next generation into a life of uncompromised union with Christ. The family and the church 
need to have the same spiritual revelation of how God has designed a human soul to thrive and be skillfully with divine wisdom drawing out each child over the years the image of the father that's in them right so those children are established as the next generation of elders that's that process right yeah i should say that again the family and the church as one unit need to have the same spiritual revelation of how god has designed a human soul to thrive we talk about that terminology we use that terminology with we all charlotte mason she god just gave her the wisdom to know how a human soul thrives and you know we're gonna we're gonna draw from her ways right that needs to be our wisdom and the church's wisdom together as one unit knowing how god has designed that human soul to thrive and to be skillfully with divine wisdom family and church together need to be drawing out of each child over the years the image of the father in increasing ways so those children are established as the next generation of elders if we don't know where we're going we're not going to get there and this is where we're going right together as one unit we need to establish the environments of both family and church to exhibit the presence and the power of god so your family is designed by god to exhibit the presence and the power of god the church same thing presence and the power of god exhibited both need to be our highest priority both the family and the church need to be our highest priority as parents as children of god as servants of the lord for the priority for our love for our devotion for our time for our energy for our dreaming for our sacrifice because in this time and season on earth we our generation we are responsible to walk by the spirit so the fullness of christ fills everything in every way it doesn't happen by accident it happens with intentional love and devotion and passion and dreaming and sacrifice right and wisdom you are called to build the family of god at home and build a local church family so i believe the reason the church is unable to both usher in and sustain revival that god wants to constantly cover the earth is because of the crisis in christian family thus what i do okay christians for the most part are not consumed with raising revivalists they want believing children moral children children who have christian values somewhat of a biblical worldview give or take they passively hope revival will sovereignly materialize by the hand of god if they're lucky in their lifetime right and that they and their children might get swept up in the joy and the power of it all it's going to happen to me if i'm lucky and god has it in the cards right not so the bible tells us that god's eyes are constantly looking to and fro across the earth to see for whom he can show himself strong right second chronicles i think it is 16 there are people to whom god can show himself strong 
And there are people to whom he cannot show himself strong. Which line do we want to be in? <laughs> he is looking for the pure in heart. He is looking for the courageous ones, the single-minded ones, the passionate ones, the ones he can trust with his spiritual gifts, the humble, those empty of self, the yielded ones, ones who have been discipled into the nature of Christ. In other words, in a very few years, his eyes will be searching the eyes of your children to see if they can usher in and sustain revival. Are they trained up like Timothy's mother and grandmother trained up Timothy? The young man Paul recognized as one able to carry and release the glory of God? God's eyes will fix on our children with this question in mind. Can I, is this, is this a, a person, young or old, is this a person to whom I can show myself strong? To some he will be able to do that to some he won't. I believe all Christian parents need to anticipate that this question is going to come in God's heart when he looks at our children and we need to prepare with great intentionality for that. And we are so far behind the curve. I don't, I'm not talking, you know, saying we, you, you know, this one. It's like you know, Christendom, like our family, our, our, our people, right? Our people. <laughs> the culture we live in consistently, year after year, lowers the bar for just about every high and holy thing and calls it the new normal. Just for a simple example, I'm old enough to remember when there was a stark difference between genteel, refined speech, and gutter talk. You probably don't remember. I'm old enough to remember. Every year, gutter language has become the new normal. Foul, vulgar, sexually violent language is used as lightly among educated working class people like they use um in their speech. Hardly anyone younger than me even blinks at that language anymore. Some years back, I had lots of kids for years um, from the local uh, elementary school weekly in our home for a time, an after-school time that was focused on helping them come to love Jesus. And often I'd pick them up in my van and it was jaw-dropping to me the kinds of conversations they would be having right behind my ear together in my van without any shame, without any sense that this is inappropriate. And they loved me. They appreciated me they respected me so this wasn't like they were going well let's just you know be raw and ugly in front of somebody we don't care about they go no this is like grandma jan you know and and these conversations that would be going in about what they had said and where they were and what they did and what they were thinking about and what they were watching on tv and the things that they were hearing and reading and all of that and i was like i am so glad lord when we come up my driveway all of that cannot come on my property and these children have clear airspace to come back to find out the real normal which is holiness and purity but the normal had been so 
lowered, the bar so lowered in the lives of these children. And for much reality, we have to say in our own lives, um, that, that it was just shocking to me, right? The bar just keeps coming down in and out of the church and being established as a new normal for children and for adults. I came to the Lord in the Jesus movement in the 60s. I didn't know there was such a thing. I, I was totally unchurched, right? So I didn't know there was such a thing as revival and not revival. All I knew was I am now a Christian and voila, this is like great. <laughs> you know? I mean, all that beautiful, beautiful love and um, the walls down between races and, and ages and, um, and, you know, who was poor, who was a doctor at Stanford and who was here, you know, this guy, Ernie Flegel, long hair, acne, right out of the, <laughs> the, the sort of the hippie movement, tires for treads on his sandals and stuff, you know, just loving each other, everybody meeting each other. I mean, you just go, you guys, I don't know if you've, you haven't had a chance to taste it, right? But it was there. It was beautiful, just beautiful, right? I didn't know that, that it would come to an end. And I was stunned when it, the air went out of it like a flat tire. And then, you know, just you're kind of going, well, it's kind of like dematerializing here. And then you're down to flat tire, right? Over the years, I have asked God many times, why revival, which so beautifully exhibits his love and power and forgiveness, why does it rise and fall through the generations? Why does it die down? And I believe it's because Christian parents lose their vision and their zeal to raise up Davids and Daniels and Esthers and Marys and Jeremiah's and Timothy's and Joseph's and on and on, right? One generation doesn't pass on the wisdom of how to raise a generation of children to catch the eye of God. So if one generation can do it, but then you don't pass on, how did we do that to the next generation? They can't perpetuate it, right? And it, bam, there's your flat tire. And then you wait and wait and wait because it's just a downward spiral of lowering the bar and lowering the bar and lowering the bar. So God can obviously find a few good souls to ignite into a revival somewhere in the world. But the next generation is not raised up and put in place to sustain it because of parental ignorance and parental apathy. But it's a two-way crisis. And I believe the crisis of Christian family is perpetuated by the new normal in the church. Much of the church has lost the spirit wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, and the spirit of revelation. It takes both of those to be the dwelling place of God. And the adults feel deeply satisfied if the children in the churches name the name of Jesus, enjoy youth groups for a season, sing worship songs, get baptized, and marry another Christian, and stay churchgoers. Hallelujah, we have succeeded, right? It's deemed success if only a mere 70 to 80% of our children reject Christ a few years after they leave home. Prayers for the prodigals to come home 
are absolutely normative in every parent conference and any family camp that you go to. That's just normal. Let's spend a night praying for the prodigals to come home. You're going, oh my God, how did that get to be normal? Why? Why are we not staying up over the night praying for the fire of God on our children who love Jesus, you know, to take them out to the edge of where we've never been? Why are we starting in hell and trying to pull them out over and over and over again? It's wrong. Something's wrong. And there's, you know, and we can define it. I think we can get a handle on it. It is as if both the family of God, the family, excuse me, and the church in the West, which is our realm of responsibility, help each other lower the bar of the gospel for young and old, lower the bar of the supernatural life, lower the bar for what is called the presence of God and the glory of God. Our families and the church discipling children in a reality that this world is not their home, that they were created to live for something higher than themselves, that they are created to be people who don't fear death, who don't love riches and gluttony, and who are willing to suffer for righteousness? Are they together discipling children whose sole desire is to carry and release the glory of God on earth, come hell or high water? The biblically ordered family and the biblically ordered church are the training centers for each generation to bring in and sustain revival. Can that be said about your family? Can that be said about your church? In contrast to God's supernatural, double-barreled design to establish his kingdom on earth and result in the beautiful bride of Christ that he's going to return for. Let's consider, albeit painfully, the consistent statistic that indicates that at best 60% and more likely 70 to 80% of our children reject the Lord right after, you know, very shortly after they, they leave home right at the time actually when they should be stepping into leadership roles in the church in their generation right about the time as young men and women they should be so on fire for god ready to take the baton and take revival higher they're dropping like flies what is that all about it's a multifaceted cause obviously but it distills down to one thing the failure of the family, at least from my perspective, and this is what I'm putting forth to you, I think it distills down to the failure of the family and the church as bold, effective disciples. How do we stop the hemorrhage of our children falling into the hands of the world, the flesh, and the devil? There's so much we could talk about here, but I want to focus on one issue. How our children come to love God versus just knowing about God and why loving God is the critical issue we need to be concerned about in raising our children. How do our children come to love God? So here are three relevant scriptures. I'm just going to read them. Luke 10, 25-28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The most important thing for a child is to come to love God with every part of his being. We don't put obedience first. We don't put works first. We don't put anything above how does our child come to love God. John 21, 14 to 22. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then he ends his words with Peter with, follow me. All right, the rest of this account has Jesus telling Peter how hard it's going to be in his life to follow him because he that will hold you on the path of serving and following me despite whatever comes. If you love me, love me, love me, you will stay with me to the end. Love is the power to endure, nothing else. Thus, 60 to 80% of our children falling away. John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus then goes on to say that loving him is the critical thing that releases the Father to send the spirit of truth to dwell in you and be with you so you can live a God-filled life. If you love me, obedience will flow. Right? Don't flip it for our children. We will be doing them a great disservice. We'll be just making them roadkill for the enemy. God makes it very clear that his greatest purpose for a human being is to reestablish in a person's heart the love for God that existed before the fall. Is the downfall of the 60 to 80% of young potential revivalists because family and church have left them loveless toward God. It is possible to acknowledge Christ as Lord, live compatibly within a Christian family, attend a church, live a moral kind of life, be familiar with the Bible, and not love God. That might be some of us. Not loving God cuts off the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, the Spirit of God who's capable of keeping us from stumbling and falling away. 
At least one of the failures, seemingly the most critical one, in the discipleship of our children is leading them into loving God. When family and church fail on that front, children of the upcoming generation get devoured. We're going to take a look at what the family and the church can do to empower love for God in a child's heart. But I just want to pause here. Um, any discussion, anything you want to open up, anything you want to share, you, you just take some time. You're free to take it in whatever direction you want that part of thing. What do you do if the church you're attending you feel like is not quite aligned? We're going to get to that at the end. Yeah. I almost feel like I'm, I'm finding that church. I, even though we're attending a church, I just bear down and just stick it out, even though we really miss community. Like, I, I just, I, I can't be choosy. We've had these discussions, and so that's, that's our struggle right now is finding. Yeah. And then trying to not prioritize children's naps and, and override that. Because that's not the most important thing in life right now. So that's like where I'm processing too. Yeah. It's like finding a needle in the haystack. You want, you have this ideal, almost like with marriage, but I felt like this is harder than finding a spouse sometimes. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to. Yeah. If finding, if finding is the route, maybe it's not. Yeah. So that we'll, we'll, we'll get to it and we'll see. Then we'll, hopefully we'll have some more time for that. But you're, yeah, and this is the question. I, you know, in all the years of doing LOE and then before that, you know, just um, over and over and over, things distill down in conversations with parents when it comes down to church situations of, you know, is, are we one? Is this a, first of all, parents have not had a philosophy of parenting and to even try and match up in a church or create in a church. So getting that locked in yourself is absolutely the first thing. Getting your home in order is the first thing because your home is the source of the waters that are to flow into the church. And then you're hand in hand. It don't look to it the other way. You create it with your children, with your life and with your children. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that if we get to that today. All right, you want to go on more? You doing okay? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Question, which is, um, this is really amazing because one of my, I think, like deepest prayers, most recently, including this week, has been like, yeah, how do we, especially living in a place like, I mean, from my perspective, like the United States, I mean, life can be really hard, obviously, on a daily basis, but. I don't know, like in a way, easy. So like there's that deep concern of, yeah, like that's been the prayer is to, to raise children that worship God and you know, live in awe of him. And, and, we, and we learned a lot of that, I think, in the master, or I did, because it was my first time with you in the master class last year. Um, so I guess that's just a thank you because this is like mm -hmm. almost like, it is like an answer to prayer, like God, like asking him that question, how do we do that? One, one thing that I, I think has continued to perplex me is meeting um, on a regular basis Christian families, um, um, let's say like older, um, 
you know, with adult children, let's say with older children, and um, at least one massive breach, either sibling to sibling or parent to child. And I just try to wrap my brain around that because I'm going to be totally honest, it kind of freaks me out. I'm thinking, because I'm looking at families, like missionary families, they've devoted their lives to God, and here they have like major breaches with their adult children, um, whether, you know, families that are homeschooled or families that are not homeschooled, and this is happening. I mean, do you have any inkling of, you know, where, because you're talking about there's this integration between the church and, and family, so where is this, like, I don't know, like, where is this going wrong? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's impossible to know because we're not walking that journey with them, but I meet these families on a regular basis, so I'm sort of like, where is this coming from? So how did these children, how did these children get through the family years and in the church family come out not loving God? Because it is the not loving that leaves you vulnerable to sin, to anger, you know, to all, all that sin produces, division, alienation, selfishness, um, you know, you're, you're just left with the flesh, which is uglier, you know, ugly as hell, right? So how did that happen? How does that happen? That out of good homes, um, and, and I, you know, we have to stay humble. I mean, I, we just, we stay really humble. And every time you run across families like that, which is all the time, right? It ought to just flip your tummy and get you on your face before God, just going, oh God, help me help me you know i i that i don't want to receive that as my story i'm not judging anybody i'm just saying that's a possibility not with me and my house and my children and my church god not me and i give you everything of my soul my emotions my will my obedience i give you everything you can do whatever you want with my life you can take my life I have prayed this prayer. There was a time when, when we were pastoring, my husband was pastoring at a church and, and the kids were like, you know, my kids are like 10 years apart, you know, from the oldest to the youngest, right? But at all the different stages, I'm looking, I'm going, I'm losing my kids to cultural Christianity. And I, I, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I was just devastated. I thought, God, this cannot happen. And I remember getting down on my face, down on my face before the Lord and I said, I, you can do anything. I give you permission. I beg you, do anything you need to do to call my children into a deep love of you that, and they will not be lost to cultural Christianity. Don't let it happen. And I said to him, you can take my life. You can take my money. I don't, it's not, what have I got to offer you? I have nothing to offer you. It's all yours, right? Take it all. Do whatever you want. Whatever circumstances. I give you permission. Do anything. Don't lose my, let me lose my kids, right? And he answered my prayer, you know, I mean, there's <laughs> a funny story that goes along with it of how I thought I was going to die in Africa and ended up staying in a good hotel, but, <laughs> but God knew I offered myself, you know, then I did stay in some really bad places, but, <laughs> but I was laughing when I was in Malawi. Okay. All right. Let's move on because we're going to hit all these things. Okay. All right. You can't make your child love God. You can't make your child love God. You can't make an other human being do anything internal, right? You might be able to enforce externals for a season. You can't make your child love God. 
your child is born a person, but you are the life coach for godly habit formation. You are their model for righteous living. You establish the atmosphere for their lives that draw them to love God or to reject him. You are the one who is responsible for the living ideas that get seeded into their souls. You are the one who is their inspiration to love God and love their neighbor, to live with passionate boldness for Christ in an adversarial world, to love their enemies, to be deeply thankful every day of their lives, to receive correction with thankfulness and seek wisdom as a treasure, to value righteousness, embrace internal peace, and live in joy, which is their introduction to the kingdom of God that he wants to establish within them. You can't make your child love God, but you can fulfill the role of John the Baptist in their lives in the way of preparing your children's hearts to be wide open path for the Lord to walk into and on and establish himself as their first love. You can do that. Do you remember the seventh principle of your parenting philosophy? <laughs> you parent your child based on what God states is the highest and the best for the child, not based on what you can tolerate of unprofitable behaviors and attitudes. Let's flesh that out. I want to share with you a partial list I came across of what characterizes a person who is incapable of loving others, which would include the capacity to love God. All right. So listen to this list. You're going to notice that these behaviors and attitudes we mostly consider typical of children. Number one, they blame others for any problems that arise and can't or won't acknowledge openly how they may be contributing to the problem. They're narrow-minded, only focused on how a situation or relationship benefits them or interferes with what they want. Number two, in relationships, they feel no personal accountability or responsibility for how things are going and what they are doing wrong. They feel no need to work on themselves to change. They are self-conscious, number three. They're self-conscious, self-focused rather than self-aware, which turns all of life inward, so they are constantly discontent, resentful, moody, sulky, and consequently entitlement-minded. Number four, there's 12 of these. Number four, they give up easily. They won't sustain any an effort unless it makes them feel good and they want to succeed at it and know they can succeed at it or it benefits their personal immature self-image. If something doesn't fit their immature self-image building agenda, they walk away even when it leaves others hanging or hurt. Number five, they pick and choose where they want to grow in personality and character. They'll be delightful and appropriate in certain situations with certain people and unpleasant and inappropriate in other settings, all at their choosing. Number six, they emotionally withdraw when things don't go their way. 
Number seven, they're unhappy and draw everyone around them into trying to figure out why they are unhappy and how to make them happy again. They live in a way that draws others around them to coddle them. Number eight, they are inflexible and always want what they want first. They are, the miser they are miserable and resentful unless they are at the head of every line, get the first cookie, get a try at everything being done, and are pampered and privileged. They are takers and not givers. They are rigid and stuck in their ways. They live by external praises and rewards rather than deep internal satisfactions at maturing and doing what's right. Last one, number 12, they are weak-willed and can't exercise self-control and the effort it takes to do what's right when they don't feel like it. Now that's extrapolated from a list that I found online about the psychological inner personality of people who are incapable of loving. Right? That sounds like a list of children <laughs> in our culture, right? Right? So it should be very sobering, very sobering to consider that all those culturally normative behaviors and attitudes may preclude the ability of your child to truly love God. So, you know, when you say, you know, gosh, I'm meeting these missionaries, I'm meeting, you know, and, they're, and they've lost their kids or, you know, their families have blown up or whatever. And, and I'm looking and I'm saying, nobody wants that to happen. But my people perish for lack of knowledge. I mean, if, and, and here we are as one generation after another generation, do we even pass on the way to get our children in our parenting approaches to get these to not be our children? You know, our children's traits and character? We know how to do that. I mean, you've got 33, that's 234 now, 34 principles, eight tools. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, you know what? They are so valuable. They, they are ways, just working that approach to parenting. This does not have to characterize your children. They don't have to be in this column, you know, with saying, how would I describe my child? Let me count the ways. They're 12 and they're really ugly. <laughs> I mean, that's not what we're doing with our kids, right? If you are not parenting in such a way as to shift these behaviors and attitudes in your children, before they become ingrained in their personalities, you're on thin ice and you're set up to be devoured by the enemy, right? And God doesn't promise. He promises to give us wisdom. I, I just look at it, I go, I'm not judging anybody. I just, you know, I'm putting like, God, keep me from that because the enemy will chew me up and spit me out if I get there. So I just put my blinders on and I go, I don't know, but as for me, all I want to know is, you got to tell me what to do right. Show, give me models. Give me people. Give me truth. You promised me in Proverbs that wisdom cries out in the streets. I want to be the one who has ears to hear. If nobody hears the wisdom that is swirling around, give it to me. I am hungry and I'm desperate for it, right? I mean, that's how you have to live your life to not be one of the fallen ones, right? And then I don't know. You know, there can be people that you just go, man. They are living at such a higher level in their relationship with God. And look at their kid that just, you know, walked into drugs or prostitution or, you know, I mean, you just go, I don't know, God. There are just things that are, God just, there's, there's a, uh, 
statement in Proverbs that just says, I will not concern myself with matters that are too great for me. And I thought, what wisdom is that? Because if I start delving there, I'm going to sin, right? I'm not capable of handling that realm of analysis. So don't go there. Keep your blinders on. Look at yourself. Deal with God and just go. As for me and my house, I'm desperate. I'm teachable. Let your eyes look at me. You can show yourself strong to me. Right? Don't consider any of those behaviors and attitudes normal or age-appropriate for your children. Take them seriously. Work your parenting in such a way that the flip side of all of those, you could make a list of the positives. You know, what does it look like here? You know, in your handbook, you've got the char positive character traits. You've got the negative character traits. You can do the same thing with that list, right? Okay, well, and what does the positive look for? Because that's what I'm aiming for. I'm trying to, yeah, anyway, we can go there in a coaching session or something. All right, it's not okay to parent in such a way that you leave your child vulnerable to any of those behaviors and attitudes that I just described. And I hope this kicks you back in high gear to take seriously the parent coaching you've been offered with its life-producing principles and powerful tools for change. Take that list I just gave you of behaviors and attitudes, prayerfully work your parenting principles and your tools to move the negatives into the positive column as your child's life coach. Just this much will accomplish a significant amount of the John the Baptist parenting job of taking down the mountains, bringing up the valleys, making a straight way for the Lord to draw your child into a love relationship with him. If you do just that, God has, has access to that child without having to fight through all this garbage to get to that child's heart to go, wait, you put scabs on his heart, you put, you know, minefields that blow up in him every time we talk about, you know, I try to talk to him about love. That is not right. That should, they, God should be able to talk to that child about love and he goes, oh yeah. Because right? none of those things are putting walls between him and God, right? All right, if you have a look at that list, you read through that list again, or you know, if I, I can give you my notes, you can listen to it again, take your own notes, right? But if you have any questions about any of those behaviors, take those and bring them up in parent coaching calls, you know, in our troubleshooting calls, right? Do that. Okay. We can pause there. Anything? You want to stand up for a minute? You want to ask questions? We can talk on our feet for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take a picture of that after that list. Of what? Of that list that you shared. Oh, sure. Yeah, later. Or I can just send it to you, but you can oh, take a picture. Okay. You can take a picture. I like... That list is like... I can totally see how that would make a person incapable of. Actually, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because a lot of those things are... things that are, you know, considered, like when a child's been diagnosed with like ADHD, those are like the things that describe that child. And I've always, I just like, with our own diagnosis, like how, how is it possible to get them on the other side when it feels like that kind of stuff is so ingrained in their mm -hmm. biology. But God, but God, he's not a God that... I mean, diagnoses are under his feet, right? 
And so we either are supernatural or we're not supernatural. So other people with children who have that diagnosis can grieve and deal with the consequences. That's not your story. And, and so you do have a great challenge to have to put your blinders on and say, okay, that's what it says in the book. That's what the doctors say. That's whatever. I reject that. I reject that. I reject that. And what I expect and what I accept are the promises, the covenant promises of God over my daughter. And then you take the word, just like we've been, we've been learning, first tool, you pray the word and you decree the word over your child. My child has a soft heart. My child can receive love. My child can give love. You know, and, and, you, and you lock it into the scriptures, right? And you go, this is what is God's presence in my child's life, right? And you assume that the Holy Spirit is in your daughter, right? Whether she has done the thing that makes us happy, which is said the prayer and all of those things. Wait, she's in a Christian family. She's under your authority and your covering. Just treat her like a strong believer and believe the power of God working in her, right? It's going to turn it around. Shared this book. Remember that you kept getting targeted ads for it. Oh, uh huh. And it, it's been really great to listen to. What it. was it's the book? It. It, it was like a long. I can share it. You, the the one that it's the dad who's a lawyer and he's a. He's a How anyway. is it the habits of the household? Yes, yes. Yeah. He talks about decreeing or just having that that devotional time or that quiet time at night with your children, and how it might be a little bit awkward and rough at first. But just leaning into that and just knowing that it's getting into that momentum. I, I don't know if this is related to what you're saying, but like it's just reminding me about making this, these, these decrees over your kids and how sometimes it, they don't really quite understand how to absorb it, but to lean into God's desire for us to share these promises and these words of affirmation to them. So the, there are decrees and declarations that you make in beautiful winsome ways and sometimes very powerfully and super anointed ways over your children in their hearing in their presence even with the laying on of hands okay. there are times these but but the the amount of prayer and declaration that you are doing is in your prayer closet right and then god will say release this one in your child's hearing you know, and a lot of times the releasing of that is that we're, we're, the next section that we're going to get into is what that needs to feel like to a child. Now, in the early, you know, once you have a child who who has gotten hardened, you got a, a bit of a different scenario. But let's not go there yet. Let's you know let let's stay on the front end. That's my whole thing is preventative, um, in in the area of how we parent, right? Okay, everybody got enough a little snack there and things and they just go. Oh, you want to have something? Oh, the chocolate. Oh my goodness. Everybody go grab something quick. I would, if I didn't have to talk, I'd be no way at all. Okay, so I should stop this, right? And then someone knows how to connect it. Okay, so here we are. Um, what time are we anyway? 4.08. Okay, all right. So let's bring a little brain science into this, um, into our thinking now, to give us some insights as to how children come to love God. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, 
young brains differ from the adult brains in reasoning and decision making. The specific section of the brain called the amygdala, which is responsible for immediate reactions and forming initial impressions, develops early. However, the frontal cortex, the area of the brain that controls reasoning, helps us think before we act, develops later. This part of the brain is still changing and maturing well into adulthood. So pictures of young brains in action show that they work differently than the adults when they make decisions and they solve problems. Their actions are guided more, this is an important point, young brains, their actions are guided more by the emotional and reactive amygdala and less by thoughtful, logical frontal cortex. All right. According to Dr. Jim Wilder, um, he's a clinical psychologist. He's actually the one when, when you go in our handbook and we talk about stages of maturity, this is from Jim Wilder, right? But according to Dr. Jim Wilder, he's a clinical psychologist. He's been training leaders and counselors for 40 years in what he calls, what is termed neurotheology sort of the, the brain science that, that, that also, what does that have to do with, you know, our theology, right? How we think and how is our brain wired? What part of that affects what we think and believe? Um, he gives us some helpful insights about the neurological process of forming relational attachments. According to Wilder, the left side of the brain is what he calls the slow track. This is the side of the brain in charge of conscious thought, speech, strategizing, problem solving, logic, and stories. And the term I'm familiar with that I bring into this, not his term, but mine, is I describe this left brain action, right, as the objective side of, of how we come at life, right? Studies have shown that it processes, this, this, the left side processes slower than the right brain. The right side of the brain is in charge of forming individual identity, group identity, emotional attunement to others, a sense of surroundings, good, bad, scary, and forming relational attachments. And the term we could use here for this is subjective side, right? So think about that. Right side of the brain, subjective side, individual identity. Am I somebody who can re is, is um, worthy of receiving love? Am, do I have, you know, am I a person who is loving? <laughs> am I group identity? Um, can I, is, is the church family my group identity? Are these my people, right? Um, emotional attunement to others, um, just a sense of surroundings, the whole issue of discernment, ability to, to connect with people, forming relational attachments. The right side starts processing our surroundings and draws conclusions before the left side is even aware of what's happening. Jim calls this pre-conscious thought. 
meaning that our right brain processes our surroundings faster and before our conscious awareness. The right brain functions, functions um, begin with our important relational attachments and are intended to help us be ourselves in relationships. So I can be real, I can be authentic. That happens through the right side, not because I'm logically, willfully determining to be this or be that, right? I can be my authentic self. The right hemisphere is a more powerful processor than the left and samples our environment at six times a second. The left side samples at five times a second, so we often know things faster, more we, we, we go by intuition, right, than we are conscious of them, and definitely faster than we can speak about them. So Wilder notes that from a theological point of view, God put a lot of power into the responsibilities um, in the dominant side of the right brain, right? Let me word this again. Wilder notes that from a theological point of view, God put a lot of power into the responsibilities dominant that are dominant in the right side of our brains. Okay? So God must think that way of interacting with, our, with life and our surroundings and people, the right side is really valuable. Now, we had one time, I don't know, if you were in on a session that we did, but we talked about um, um, the business of fact and emotions, like feelings, feelings and emotions and, and fact, and how there was, when I was being raised up after I became a Christian you're inside of the Jesus movement, there was this whole thing of, look, you have this train, it's a fact, faith, fiction train, fact is supposed to lead out truth, 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 objective, truth. And your feelings are the caboose and just let them waggle along behind and they'll just have to go where the fact takes you, right? And, and I remember when God dealt with me on that and just said, look, I, I started reading people who were, who were, well, people in the Crusades, for example, Christians who did the most awful, god-awful things to other people based upon what they determined was fact of the word. This is what the word says, you know, do this with your enemies and do this. And you go, but you read their prayers when they were working on the right, the right side of their brain. And they were so tender and submissive and loving, you know, to God and gentleness and forgiveness and mercy. And then they go out and pick up a sword and murder people on the basis of truth, you know. And I heard, I heard God say to me, look, how about if you have a two-headed train? And I was sitting at a at a, a crossroads with my kids and the train tracks, you know, the train was going by and here's the train, here's the engine, choo-choo, and it was the longest, longest train. And I, I just, then right at the end of this train that seemed to go on forever was, a, was another engine facing the other direction but being dragged along, you know, to the left. And I heard God say, that's how you live whole. Sometimes fact is going to lead you to where I want you to go. And sometimes your misinterpretation of fact needs to be let go. And you need to go with your gut. You need to go with your heart because you just know you shouldn't go out and slaughter people like that. Even though you believe you understand the truth about what I'm telling you to do. Trust your heart. Sometimes you trust your heart. Sometimes you trust your heart. It's going to lead you into deep, dark trouble. You need to be informed by facts and be led by that train, right? 
But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and tells us which, which part, left brain, right brain, you know, to let lead. Okay, the right brain functions begin with our emotional relational attachments are intended to help us be ourselves in relationships. The right hemisphere is more powerful processor, right? Now, Wilder notes that from a theological point of view, God put a lot of power into the responsibilities dominant in the right side of the brain. That's where we left off. These functions must be important to him and crucial to our ability to grow as disciples of Jesus. All right, here's quoting Wilder now. Our right brain governs the whole range of relational life. Who we love, our emotional reactions to our surroundings, our ability to calm ourselves, and our identity, both as individuals and as a community. The right side manages our strongest relational connection, both to people and God, and our experience of emotional connectedness to others. That's all on the subjective side. My turn, not his. And it manages character formation. Think about, you know, our emphasis in parent coaching, character formation, right? And we want, well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but think about this. The right side manages character formation. Don't miss that. Character formation, which is primar a primary responsibility of family and the church, is governed by the right brain, not the left brain. He goes on to say, if we want to grow and transform our character into the character of Jesus, we must involve activities that stimulate and develop the right brain. Basically, we need to be aware that our children form attachments by gut reactions, including their attachment to God. Wilder puts forth the premise that spiritual growth actually is governed by the right brain and that we don't grow the way we have been told. He proposes that with our left-brained orientation for pursuing spiritual growth for ourselves and our children, we're actually missing God's pathways to inner transformation, which makes us carriers of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. Quoting Wilder again, the left brain runs at the speed of words. The right brain runs at the speed of joy. Isn't that a great quote? The right brain runs at the speed of words. The left or excuse me, the left brain runs at the speed of words. The right brain runs at the speed of joy. God designed our left brain to understand important aspects of our Christian beliefs. Without that, we, um, we could term objective truth with, without what but they are created from coming to know the relation, relational love of God formulated in the right brain. You can tell I, I was doing this at 2 in the morning last night, and I'm thinking, do I have these sentences right? Okay, they are, so, so basically what it's trying to say, you've got to have, you've got to have your, um, your doctrine. You have to have your truth. The left brain has to be there. But... You've got to know relational love of God that's formulated in the right brain, right? So there's a danger that we ourselves are half-brained Christians. That's where I'm going. We can be half-brained Christians. We can raise the next generation of half-brained Christians. And we're tending to replicate this in our children 
generation after generation to their detriment and setting them up to be devoured because they can't love, right? They can't love God. What this says to me is that the subjective side of how children experience God is where we really need to pay attention as parents in these early years. That's the side we really need to pay attention to. If their subjective impressions about God get skewed, those impressions get a foothold in their souls foundationally and will potentially make objective truth, quote, objective truth about God null and void. So messed up subjective impressions about God can just negate the objective truth. So I just randomly went online again and did a search for how parents could help their children love God. Right? Here are some typical suggestions from an article entitled 25 Incredible Ways to Teach Your Child to Love God. Number one, explain big concepts to children so they can grasp complex truths about God. Conduct, number two, conduct daily family devotionals. Number three, actively educate, supplement school learning with biblical perspective. Four, equip them with tools of faith that they can use when faced with atheistic ideas. Five, promote youth group participation. Tell your children, if you want to go to Six Flags, you have to go to Bible Bowl. Six, memorize scripture together. All left brain, all left brain approaches to discipling children. To the credit of these authors, though, they also had some lovely right brain suggestions too, right? I just wanted to mention these six primarily because it illustrates, you know, kind of where we go inside the church. And so um, Wilder is co-author of a book called, um, uh, oh, Half a, what is it? It's not Half a Brain Church or something, but it's essentially like that. It's, it's just, a, a, I'll get the name for you. It's, I don't think you have to read the whole book, but this beginning part about brain science was in there. It's right. The Half Brain Church, is that it? Something like that. So Wilder points out that left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategies for how you're going to do life. But it neglects right brain loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life. That's Wilder's quote. Left brain strategies are important in discipleship, but they will fail our children as years go by without strong foundational discipleship through right brain discipleship that leads to emotional relational maturity that makes loving God the foundation that all truth rests on. So what are some right brain approaches to spiritual formation of our children in the context of family? Let's start there. We've got this duo, right? This dancing duo, family and church. So let's look at, at um, right brain approaches to spiritual formation in children in the family. Here are a few to consider. You're modeling, number one, you, your modeling of a godly life spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically is more important than information you give to your children about God at this point in their lives. 
what they see, taste, touch, experience around you as a Christian, you as a follower of God, is mountains. I mean, it's light years ahead of, of influence on them in comparison to what you would teach through your Bible storybooks or your whatever. Do you do that? Yes, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Fact, if you've taken on the name Christian in the eyes of your children and you are a short-tempered, irritated, sergeant-like parent who parents by the seat of your pants instead of by conscious, wise principles, your personality and immaturity will imprint on the right brain of your child and become a stumbling block between them and their Heavenly Father. Jan Patterson quote. <laughs> Look at your life in the midst of your family. Does it give your child a true impression of the nature of God? Hold the fruit of the Spirit up to your life and pray into each one over yourself. As I say in parent coaching often, for the sake of your children, now is the best time to get on with putting off the old and putting on the new in your spirit, your mind, your emotions, your will, and your body. You are the right side input right you know right side of the brain input into your child's relationship with god future relationship with god present relationship with god number two it's so modeling what are you modeling right is christ standing in this kitchen in me expressing himself number two it is critical that everything associated with god in your family is accompanied by feelings of joy and well-being so your child's right brain senses it is good to be me here with you and God. Your words and explanations impact your child's relationship with God far less than the feelings they experience around what is associated with God. In John 15 11, Jesus tells us that his goal is for his joy to be in us and not just a little joy now and again he said but full joy right? Christianity in the home without joy permeating everything about God, the expression of God, the awareness of God, the, you know, the input about God, the principles, whatever. If it is not surrounded by joy, you are making a big mistake, right? Even correction should be surrounded by joy. Modeling the fact that, oh my gosh, what a gift from God that he told us he just told me what I did wrong. Lord, I'm so grateful to you. Wow, I am so happy for this correction going on in my life. Now we can go on and do things right. You know, instead of the resistance, the defensiveness between parent, between husband and wife, between children and parents, no. We're going to model this embracing joy around even correction, okay? Christianity in the home without joy permeating everything about God is a false impression being laid in a child's soul. It'll leave them dry with a dry, demanding, law-driven impression of God and be a huge stumbling block to loving God. When in doubt with how to disciple your children, choose joy to characterize your life, whatever you do and have say having to do with God. which is everything, by the way. <laughs> All right, number three, 
Don't confuse joy with rah-rah silly stuff like games and cartoon characters used to seemingly amuse children into considering things about God and character formation. If I just, you know, put you in front of this little dancing whatever, whatever, singing Bible verses or something, cutesy, cutesy, that's going to make you think, isn't God happy? You know. Adults think that approach to discipleship is child-friendly. It's really child-insulting. That's it. Okay. That's not joy. That's just twaddle. Okay. Number four. The most important style, lifestyle as parents and as a family um, to promote joy is to live in a state of thankfulness. So the lifestyle you must choose above everything else is a lifestyle that radiates thankfulness. An unthankful heart will never live in joy and a joyless soul is incapable of loving God. The greatest gift you can give to your children now is your living an outrageously expressive, thankful life. When you pray with your children or pray in their hearing, make 80% of your prayer focused on thankfulness. Thank you, God, for putting peace in my heart. Your beautiful peace that doesn't get shaken by anything that happens. Thank you, God, for teaching me right from wrong. Thank you for putting your Holy Spirit within me so I'm filled with your life. Thank you for giving me your beautiful mind that thinks right and chooses right. Thank you for giving me spiritual eyes to see life and love and truth and beauty. Thank you for pouring wisdom into me because I want to be wise. Thank you for making me good as you are good, perfect as you are perfect. Thank you for food, clothes, a place to live, friends, family, health, strength, the ability to work. I love you, Lord. You are everything to me. Thank you for giving me the heart to love you. I breathe to praise you, and I live to serve you. Pray like that with your children. All the time. And then throw in a little something that God already knows and is ready to answer. Thank you that you know just how to help Grandma with such and such, right? Put it all in the form of, you got it covered, you know, and, and we are so blessed and we're so thankful that it's all okay and you're in charge and pray from there instead of the worry prayers, the, oh, the heavy prayer, wow, life is so big and you're so little and it's probably all gonna come out bad, but we'll say thank you anyway, you know? I mean, come on, right? We're setting our children up for a joyless life without joy you can't love. If you pray like that, talk like that, view life like that around your children, it'll draw them to love God. It will draw you and them into the joy of the Lord, which is the road to loving God and is your strength to stay in Christ. It's their strength to stay in Christ, right? So there are endless things we could talk about regarding how to stir up the right impressions your child needs to experience God um, and to empower them to love him. But we're just going to focus on these that I mentioned, right? Parenting them so their souls are capable of loving God by modeling God for them to see and feel, living out of joy of the Lord, having your children feel the deep and endless thankfulness you have in your relationship with the Lord. 
you're going to be doing them great service and those need to be your highest goal in terms of right brain um, discipleship of your children okay, okay another break opportunity here uh, one thing that we've been trying to do with our kids following your advice was to keep them with us in service and just have to do like quiet toy stuff they have told us that they dislike church because of having to sit so long We're going to move into that and that question will be great in that context but that's it's a real it's a real important issue It's just you, though. You're not inviting other yeah, people it's in? it's just us right now. Like, we want to try and make it work for us first before we're like, hey, everybody else join us in this thing that might just crash and fail. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, but then today when you're talking about church and family, then I'm like, but then what about the rest of the community? Yeah. Like, like, we don't want our kids just to find their belonging in community and other, like, shared interest kind of things, right? Because that's not the most important thing. All right, well, let's, let's do, anybody else have a comment here? Because these are, these just lead right into where we're going. Anything else? Okay. Um, all right, we're going to start now to look at church as a unified experience for your child in their spiritual formation. I say start to look at it because it's a huge topic and it's going to need to be talked about and massaged and, you know, and, and, try it and you go have no cigar there we're going to you know we've got to change it up this way whatever right so it's a big thing but let's focus on the church side of the family church design now of god for discipling children to receive carry and release the glory of god that those words receive carry and release the glory of god hold that for yourself okay the big picture we laid out is god designed human families to raise what we can call revivalists, stream them into the church family, which is the formation of the bride of Christ. Jesus died for, right? And is coming back for as a pure and spotless bride of Christ, okay? I think it's a true statement that the earthly church, which is the local expressions, is to reflect at least to some degree the heavenly realms of God's people his family, the heavenly family, right? <laughs> Where we're all going to be. It, our families, human families, are supposed to reflect that. As, but the church, particularly, if we think about that, we go, they're all church, the 
bride of Christ. And, and here we are, the bride of Christ on the earth, right? They ought to look like each other, right? <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> all right, in the heavenly realm, all the consequences of division, alienation between God and man and between his children are done away with through Christ. Okay? Everyone's pressing into God with an ever-increasing awe ever increasing the universe is still going out the revelation of who god is will never end right because he's just unfathomable so everyone's pressing in to god with an ever increasing awe at how wonderful he is and worship and service to him flow as naturally as eternal life that's the heavenly church right now back to the church on earth <laughs> okay in a room with more than one person in it, people will have all sorts of right-brained experiences and impressions, wonderful, good, bad, and ugly, of church, right? And it's important to process those in our own hearts as well as with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, talk about those, kind of figure those out, right? But what I want us to do here is to start into some application of the premise that Christian family and church are one stream with one united purpose. Church should be seen, not be seen as one part of how you disciple your children. It's not just an aspect of how you disciple your children. It's not a beneficial side component. The body of Christ is to be the environment in which God can amplify his presence and working because of the density of his people being together in one place. It's not a random thing God says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, right? It's not just like, well, a good idea. And by the way, you might get lonely if you do that. It's like way high, you guys, you know, of what it is that actually God can accomplish in community, right? I mean, we ought to read our word. That's where our left brain needs to kick in and tell our right brain that's going I think I was wounded and I'd like to stay home <laughs> to well that's okay but you don't get your way today <laughs> so the church here the church doesn't exist for you and your family it doesn't exist for you and your family you and your family exist to be the church as God wants it to be I'm not going to say more about that but that last statement is really important to acknowledge and, and live out. Okay. But let's focus now on the subjective and objective discipleship of children in the church. Principle 10 in your philosophy of parenting is relevant here. How adults view children will determine to what extent they will guide them into an excellent life with God at all ages and stages of maturity in the context of church. How elders, that's you and all the other adults in the church, view children will determine whether children are occupied with smidgens of living ideas dropped on the child here and there to justify the isolation of children from the rest of the body or whether children are raised up from the earliest ages to minister to the Lord in the midst of the body. It's not equivalent to children coming into church. When I say minister, right, the children minister, that's not equivalent to children coming into church 
to sing a song or do a dramatization and everyone's going, the children are so cute. They're so cute. Look at that Christmas song. Look at that little pink angel. <laughs> you know, now, okay, everybody walk the children back out because we want to have church. So I mean, they're moving in spiritual gifts. When I say the children are ministering, they're, they're an integral part. They're just young saints of God, right? They're just inexperienced saints of God. They have a full Holy Spirit. So I mean, they're moving in spiritual gifts. They're excited to prophesy to other people under the leading of the Holy Spirit. They're bold in intercession. They're worshiping in the Spirit. That's what I mean. How soon can children taste and see that the Lord is good in the church? Recognize his presence. Learn to let his life flow into them and through them to others. How soon can children do that? Very soon, if you believe they can. We get so bogged down, distracted and preoccupied in the nuts and bolts of child management, both in our homes and with church, that we miss our shining opportunities to prepare and release our children to see God in and on and around them. We're just down here doing the stuff of, here, hand you a toy, be quiet, and you know, whatever, right? We miss our opportunities. I've been, quote, in the ministry, if you can, you know, aren't we all, but the way people use that. I've been in the ministry in some form ever since I became a Christian at the age of 20. I worked with high school students in churches according to the typical strange combination of left brain input to these kids and high powered, keep them laughing and ramp up the activities model. And I realize now why so many of those precious children that I worked with for two years, um, they acted like they were God's kids, but they're under a rock, right? And their lives are in a shamble. How did that happen? You know, good people, caring people, like our leaders, like our teams, like everything, you know, doing this left brain thing. Here's the truth. And by the way, now, um, because you're a kid, because you're a youth, we're going to do all this wild rah-rah stuff with the youth group that the kids start to get jaded with and go, we did that ropes course last year. I think I'll do something else this summer instead of go to camp. You go, what did we just do to the soul of a child, right? I lived that, okay? Um, as a pastor's wife, I've experienced the pressure in church to put kids, my kids, into age-segregated Sunday school settings, isolated from me while I was somewhere else doing the big church stuff where God was really working in a big way, right? Meanwhile, you can do the cotton ball on the little sheep and you're the lamb of God. Don't you know that big living thought? So I'm sorry, that was really bad of me. I'm really sorry. Erase that from the tape, Sunday school teachers. I am very sorry. I truly mean that. I have seen how in the early years of church, children are all delighted to hang with their friends and, and they're off to the side and how as they got older, their right brain, right brain over here, embraced the reality more that their friends and their youth group were their church experience. That's, they were their church experience and this actually became a roadblock to their deep spiritual formation. It was a John the Baptist, oops, right? A mountain. We put mountains in their way. We put big valleys in their way, right? By letting them get this impression that 
this is my group and you hang with your little group and then we tell them don't have cliques at school dear you need to love everyone and then we click them up right i mean we just cultivate clickishness inside christian community for god's sake right so i know i know i know that christians who are walking deeply with the lord who I know them, who have I can attribute their intimacy with God to the influence of their Sunday school classes, to their youth group, and I believe them, right? I just see that as the exception to the rule and not the norm. I do believe people have had that experience and it has highly benefited them. I just don't believe it's the norm because I think it defies the left brain, right brain. I think it defies a bunch of our parent coaching principles. I think it defies how God has made souls to thrive. And when I say thrive, I mean set up to reach your destiny, big things, right? Living for things higher than yourself. Do I believe in classes in church to teach both adults and children? I absolutely do. Do I believe in youth groups in churches? Not in the way most of them operate. I believe those groups could be so powerful for discipling children that most of them are not effective um, in their stated goals and the way they go about things. Maybe the goals are okay, but I'm going, what you're doing isn't accomplishing those goals <laughs> most of the time. So what should be happening in church, in the church family with children? All right. I'm going to, I said, I, I'm, anyway, I'm going to go in here. Okay. There is nothing supernatural about keeping your children in adult church services unless you have a vision and you're working it for all it's worth in the spiritual formation of your children. You've got to know the why and the why has got to inform the how and the how is going to translate to the right outcomes. Here's where your parenting tools should be the same for church as they are for parenting your family. Here's your eight tools. You know them by the back of your hand. Just in, in family, church, in church family, right? Same thing. Pray and decree the word of God over your children in terms of how the church family is impacting their lives, but how they are impacting the life of the family. Pray that your children will be the revivalists to bring you know, the stilted, bring down the stilted walls of left-brained, half-brained church, right? Your children can be the source of revival. Just look back, just look back at um, the Welsh revival and the place that the youth held in that, right? It was the old gray hairs who just came alongside to help them here and there, but it was the passion of the youth. It was the all-night prayer meetings of the youth. It was the, the everybody praying in tongues in different parts of the room and, and ministering and going out and seeing people saved. And it happened among the young, right, that were nurtured by the old. It was so beautiful. So pray and decree the word over your children, but don't do it from the angle of, oh, let this church bless my child. Lord, my child is filled with the Holy Spirit because he's been raised in my home 
and this is what we're doing with our children. We minister together as a family. We pray over each other. We, you know, the Holy Spirit is present in our house. We are carrying that fire and glory into this church meeting, and all heaven is going to break out. And my kids are a part of carrying that glory and releasing that glory. Pray and decree the word over your children from that perspective. Require attention, right? When you have children who are, now we'll get down to a bit to the specifics, but when you have children that you're keeping in church um, with you, right, you have their quiet things. But that can be a, become sort of almost a, a, just a mechanical thing of, okay, well now I'm not doing that thing, so we must be okay. And I go, but this thing is not going real well. Right? So wait, wait, we have to reevaluate here. So the ideas for the children to be in an environment with a little bit of support that they need to be able to free them up, to rise up into everything that they, you know, they're supposed to be doing, systematically growing up, right? Maturing spiritually. So the little things that they are doing are not supposed to be so captivating to them, right? That they're, they feel occupied. That's what you don't want with a child. That is the worst affront to God, to bring a child into the church family and have them subjectively feel like, I'm the one who needs to be occupied here. How do we avoid that? Not a lightweight discussion, but I can, I'll give you some hints, right, and get you started thinking. They should not feel like they are supposed to be occupied. We'll talk a little bit about it. Require attention so that there are ways that you can help your child learn to hear, listen, you, you know maybe the pastor is teaching in Ephesians. They're going to be in Ephesians 6. You and your kids read it ahead of time. I'm going to have myself. I'll give you some ideas. Um, but you're going to require attention, and you're going to give them the tools to attend. Begin attending, and attending a little more, and attending a little more. I can remember when each of our boys systematically um, we getting in the door, you know, Dick goes, Pastor, we're getting in the door, going out the door to go to church. And I would say, do you have your quiet bag? And, and Ben would just say, no, Mom, I don't need it. And I go, okay, right? And Darren, no, Mom, I don't need it. No, Mom, I don't need it. And just at their own time, right? And then they're sitting around the dinner table with, with um, friends, and we're, we're all talking, and our kids love to stay at the table most of the time, you know, even at a very early age because they were hungry for the whole conversation and um, that were going on and they would they would jump into the conversation when people were talking about church and they go oh my favorite pastor is this i really like it when he teaches right i like his sense of humor maybe they would say i like his sense of humor to tell jokes that's why i like him i go it's okay with me you are subjectively liking being in church learning from this teacher even if it's how to laugh which is a good gift from god right i go that's working for me right but the, here they are talking about their favorite pastors or their teachers and and asking questions and incrementally making these steps, right? Present a bright and inviting face around everything having to do with God. If you are holding your children into settings where your family devotionals have your children looking like this, whether they're going, you know, they're ever, I'm going, don't do it. That's just my, other people will say, do it until they smile and they'll get over it. Maybe, maybe that's that, you know, Take both and pray. God will tell you what to do with your kids. But my thing is, I want everything having to do with God to have a good feel to it. I want it to be about joy. I would rather my grandkids come over on Thursday mornings to do grandma school. And we have a nice big couch, right? We read a little Bible story. I pray first. I pray. 
and I put my arms around them. And now they've gotten to be, when I have them all at the same time, there's too many for my arms. So I put my arms around two on this side, two on this side. And then these two put their arms around the other two on the outside, right? <laughs> so sweet. And I just pray. I say, God, teach my children, my grandchildren, something for successful living today. That's my prayer. They're going to remember me for that, right? And then we'll do something. I don't know. It's reading a story or we'll talk about something, 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 right? But the, the whole idea is that it just feels good to them. You know, there's a, a head on a shoulder here. There's even when I'm having to correct them and they're, you know, maybe they're getting a little antsy. I'm not done with what I felt like God wanted me to release to them, right? And then if I have to just reach over, there's a smile on my face when I'm touching their knee going, you know, with a little twinkle in my eye, with a little whoops, like that little leg is moving too fast, too far, you know? And then they'll just kind of look and they're, but it's a feel good time. With grandma, it's a, most of the time. I blow it, I blew it the other day, grieved my heart. Anyway, um, but it's, it should be a feel good time and they should go, it is good to be me here with you and God, grandma. That's all I want. God will take care of the content He'll take care of the left brain stuff. They can learn it. They can learn that principle. They can learn that Bible verse. I mean, you know, it can be a sweet, joyful thing to learn Bible verses. And then, especially if you're driving and you and you something happens, you know, you see a car accident and you go, whoa, now's the time we can use that Bible verse. <laughs> you know, bam, bam, bam. Everybody spews out the Bible verse and you start praying according to it. I go, filled with joy, filled with meaning, you know. That is what you're aiming for. If you have a choice, I'll say it over, I'll say it over again. Um, when in doubt, choose joy, right? That's what's going to lead your children to love God, not the other. Yeah. Is it okay to have a question on that note? Go ahead. Um, so I thought you were saying it was time to go. Yeah. I'm going, oh, <laughs> probably <laughs> as poor thing. Oh, we have five minutes, yeah. Um, so it's felt really good because... So Noah, my elder, is now three. Jonah just turned two. And we don't have like a routine, like 8 a.m. we do Bible time, but like we do have some sort of rhythm where it happens somewhere in our day. I'd like to kind of get, I don't know if that's helpful to have it at a certain time. Yeah. And sometimes they're really hungry for that moment if we're reading an account or just whatever we're uh -huh. doing. Um, but there are times like, um, like I'll get, okay, the, the Bible and Noah will say, no, 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 I don't want to do that right now. So mm -hmm. I try to like continue to go on, definitely not pressing like, we're going to do this, you know, but mm -hmm. pressing, like kind of distracting like, oh, but you know, let's see, you know, what, what we can learn or whatever. But what would you recommend? Is it, kind, you know, I just put a smile on my face and yeah. say, oh, what would you rather be doing? Okay. And he would say, oh, I would rather be going to play with my toys. And you get your little hourglass out and you go, okay, well, we're going to do this right now. And when that hourglass goes down, this is your train playing time. We're going to get them both in, Sweet Pea. Okay. That's it. Just take the pressure off his heart. Yeah. Like, wait, is this going to, is this like cutting off my joy time with my day, right? Yeah. It's interfering. Just go with soul, right? No, it's all going to happen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. All right. Your, here's your, your tools you're using. Train for success for church through pre-training, training on site and the redo, form habits intentionally and thoughtfully. These are just your tools out of the handbook. Supply living ideas, give children glimpses of your holiness process. Go back over those tools and think about this in terms of church family now, okay? 
All right, let me paint an idealistic picture. And it is idealistic, absolutely idealistic picture, right? But if you want to go on a diet, take a really idealistic picture and put it on your refrigerator. It's okay to be idealistic. You can always back it down, but you can't go beyond your idealism, right? So make it high. Let me paint an idealistic picture of the church family powerhouse duo for deep spiritual formation of children, okay? First goal is, as we talked about earlier, for children to come to love God. Every good thing about being a Christian will flow in their lives with that foundation. That is your highest top goal. How do I work now that I've got some brain science, now that I know this, that, and the other thing, now that I know what parenting things I need to be working on, I am moving towards my highest goal, which is that my child is going to be a lover of God. And there you go. There's your scripture. All my children will be taught of the Lord, and great will be the peace of my children. And my child will love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, because the Holy Spirit is their teacher and their truth. Right? I mean, you're going for it, right? Okay, that's your first goal. To love God, parents will train and equip them to love the church and sense his presence and fullness there. All right? You're going to train and equip your children to love the church and sense his presence and his fullness there. You, have, you can't just bring children into church, sit them at a table, give them quiet things, you know, have them be a little antsy, run out to the bathroom, come back, be tired that they're sitting, wait to get up and run around. I mean, that, what does that have to do with training and equipping? I mean, they just feel occupied. So you've got to do something ahead of time. You've got to do something in the middle, and you have to do something on the backside of church times, right? So what if, just what if, our lives as devoted Christian families, Sunday is the day we look forward to with the greatest anticipation and excitement, the day we plan for in multiple ways. Just what if? Kids, look at the calendar. What's on the calendar? Everything revolves around the anticipation of Sunday. Sometimes it all revolves around the anticipation of, you know, an activity. I get to go horseback riding. We're going to take a vacation. You know, we're going to do Little League or, you know, what? we all have our things, our joy things that we are anticipating. Just what if, as God's redeemed people, that could be the case, that we actually set the atmosphere. Remember, you have atmosphere, you have habit formation, you have living ideas now, right? Charlotte Mason, you're back to your parent, your parent training. Okay, what if in our lives, as devoted Christian families, Sunday is the day we look forward to with great anticipation and excitement, and it is the day we plan for in multiple ways? What if parents and children pray regularly for the church during the week and for God to come and reveal himself there? And they're trained up to be watching and discerning. You're training your children to be watching and discerning both the subtle and the bold ways God is moving. If I want my kids to love God and God says he can be seen, right? Then I just go, how am I going to teach my kids to see God? What's he doing? I'm going to teach them to watch faces. I'm going to teach them to watch body language. I'm going to teach them to watch people in conversation. I'm going to teach them to watch worship leaders, you know, and, and watch people as they're worshiping. I'm going to say, we can, God's given us eyes. We can see God here. So I'm going to, you got to teach them, train them ahead of time. I give them practice, right? 
So you're going to train them up to watch and discern both the subtle and the bold ways God is moving. Sort of like detectives eager to spot the Holy Spirit. Where is he? What's he doing? Watch for him, right? Sometimes it'll be bold, like, whoa, that person fell over, or, uh, you know, whatever kinds of things that can happen. Or you just look and you go, Auntie, you know, Beth, I saw this tear go down her cheek right there. So what if families came to church expecting God to answer that prayer? You know, God, will you move here? Um, you're praying for the church, for God to move, reveal himself. And you come to church saying, God is going to move here today. God is going to reveal himself because he does that when his people gather all together. So we're going to see it. We're going to see it today. And you actually build anticipation. Like you would build anticipation for anything you want your child to come in sort of, you know, excited about. What if families came to church expecting God to answer that prayer? What if families asked God ahead of time what he wanted them to focus on about him in worship? So before, you know, during the week, you know, you've got some prayer time and you go, Lord, there's going to be worship. We're going to worship together in church. What do you want me to focus on when I worship you? What do you want me? How do you want me to see you, right? Ah, right now I can see, I can see in my redeemed imagination i can see jesus on the throne and this long robe like it talks about in revelation i can see that that's how you want me to see you on sunday i'll do that jesus i'll do that i'll see you just like that the whole time we're worshiping right train them to see and ask god questions and come in with an anticipation now they're coming in not to worship like oh where's my toys or whatever right they're coming in and, and you're reminding them you're going remember on wednesday when we prayed and you saw it, you know, you heard God say to you, he wanted you to see him this way in worship. Remember that to do that right. You know, here's the little cloth. You can lie down here on the floor. You can lay your head on my lap. You know, remember, like, if that's what he said, do that because he's going to meet you there, sweet pea, right? Okay? And they, what about if they found the scripture in response to what he said? You go, oh, I think that's in Revelation somewhere. You just saw something out of the book of Revelation. Let's go read that, right? So before you're even going to church, they found that scripture. They're looking at it. They go, wow, that's so great, right? They ask God how they could, how, how about if they um, prayed into that scripture? Lord, what is it like for you to be sitting on that throne? And, you know, and how am I to worship you, right? So they actually have interacted with it. Um, what about if they, um, they ask God, you know, how can you minister through me in church on Sunday? What do you want to carry in through me? And what do you want to release through me? Children, little tiny children. What do you want to give out of yourself through me? You can teach them to do that. It's going to be in snippets. It's going to be age appropriate, right? But they start seeing that they're carriers of the glory and that they can release and lay hands on people and they can pray for people and they can pray for people without people knowing they're being prayed for, right? But you've set them up ahead of time, pre-trained for success, just like you do for how you're going to take a kid to the grocery store, right? I talk to them ahead. I go, how are we going to assess the situation? What's going to go on here? How are you going to have a successful situ you know, experience in here? This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And we're going to practice, right? We're going to do our dry runs and then we're going to do our, our real things and we're going to train in the midst you're going to give them their little words of of sort of heads up this is what's coming they go in they have an experience they come out maybe in the middle of it you've got to take a child out you come in you do a redo you do a redo next week you do a redo reenactment in your home going oh now that's what it is to listen for god right okay maybe the children make spirit inspired drawings 
or cards ahead of Sunday with words of encouragement and prophecy that the Spirit leads them to give to specific people at church. You know, so ahead of time, there's, there's days you're preparing for what's going to happen at church. And you're going, okay, let's just ask God now. Who needs a word of encouragement? Who needs something to encourage them? Do you see anybody's face? Do you hear anybody's name come into your head? Ah, yeah, okay. You know that, yes, and Bob lost his job. Well, I bet he could use some encouragement, right? Okay, crayons, paper, here, we can make a card, right? What do you want to draw? That you know, Ask God, Lord, what do you want me to draw so that I can, this, this can be used to encourage him in some way? Is there a Bible verse? Are there words you want to say? And then they're, they're primed when they get there. You go, sometime, now you ask God exactly when he wants you to give it. Because timing is everything, you guys. You know, sometimes... You just you know, pay attention to God's timing when he has you do something. So ask God, when does he want you to give him that card? You know, and how does he want you to do it? Do you want to just slip it into his Bible so he finds it in the morning? You know, do you want, do, does God have you to go up and give it to him? Does he, does he have you to give it to his wife to give it to him? I mean, I don't know, you know, but do what God says, right? Um, okay. So maybe the family prays during the week that a person who's struggling gets touched by God in a special way during the worship. And you go, okay, Lord, you know, Bob did lose his job. Could you, we're just asking you that you would really meet him in the worship time. I sense you really want to meet him in the worship time. Just touch him, God. You know, your Holy Spirit, fall on him. Just comfort him and give him, give him just a deep sense of your love, right? And then you're going into church, go, remember when we prayed that over Bob? watch him don't now don't be rude don't look you know don't do that right but, we, but out of the corner of your eye just kind of keep glancing because you know we prayed we asked god says he's going to answer he is going to touch bob during worship right and you just go god thanks for touching bob during worship you know and then they they look and they go did you see him they go well i saw him put his head down i think that's when god touched him i saw him something something right okay um maybe the family prays during the week that um a person is going to be touched during the teaching, um, during the koinonia times, and that together the family watches to see what God does with a person so they can rejoice to the answer of that prayer, right? Lord, we just really sense that you want to encourage this person when we have the fellowship time, if there's going to be the coffee time or there's something. Would you just bring them into conversation that's really going to bring a word to them. You know, maybe it's with us, maybe it's somebody else, right? But you watch them in conversation, but having a conversation, you go, do you see how, how, how serious they were when they were talking to Sally? I think that's when God answered our prayer. Right? What if the family prays ahead of time that God would speak a word of encouragement or love or correction to each of them during the church time? And they say together, Lord, as a family, speak. Your servants are listening. We're just going to listen for a word of encouragement or a word of correction, each of us, to each of us. And then they share your notes as you go home in the car. Did you hear anything from God? You know, How did he encourage you? Like, yeah, I just had this deep sense that God loved me. Or I heard, you know what, I thought of, I thought of how I took that toy out of my brother's hand and made him cry. And God said, don't do that again. You know, just stuff like that, right? What if families plan together to listen for any indication of needs in the body and then plan how they might meet those needs? They're overhearing a conversation. Somebody's going, oh, my car broke down. You know, I don't know if I have the money to do that. Or, gosh, my mother is sick. I don't have the money to get back to Florida. Or, you know, I mean, whatever it might be, right? And so you go, have your ears open because God wants us listening for needs. 
and then we're going to ask God, is there a way that we can pray for that or tangibly help that or something? Hey, you know what? It's COVID time. We've got lots of miles and we haven't gone anywhere. We could give our Southwest miles to John. He could go to see his mother, right? I mean, just all that beauty, right? What if the joy of the Lord permeates the church time every Sunday because you created it, you brought it? What if children are trained to love serving? They help serve the fellowship meal and they sit to eat after everybody else is served. What if they're excited about cleaning up with joy because they've learned to enjoy family work at home? Remember, you're the, you're the stream, it's the same stream. So the beauty of your home flows through the beauty of the church, right? What if children are naturally not in a stilted or a contrived way, often the ones to read the scriptures aloud before or in the midst of the sermon, are discipled to ask questions during the discussion time? You have any questions, sweetie, you want to ask? You know, we sit around or, you know, talk and questions. Ask a question, right? I remember the first time Maddie did that. She was standing at a little, her little desk, pulled a desk. You know, she was doing her quiet things and her grandpa was, you know, we had, he had taught and we were talking and, and she just, she, you know, she was totally uninhibited, just blurted out and just said something about, yeah, well, and, and what about this and that and whatever. And everyone kind of looked initially like, whoa. You know, where'd she get? And then she asked a second question. And I was just like, yes, right? And I'll tell you, she did that for a bit and then it stopped. I'm not telling you that we are doing all these things, that I have done all these things. I'm just telling you what God put in me and said, say this. I really believe he is saying this. Not because it's possible, because it's possible. What's possible, right? So they can be reading, they can read the scriptures, but not like putting on a show. Oh, the cute little 10 year old, doesn't she read well? Stop it, gag me, right? The anointing of God is on her to read the scriptures, hear the word of God of the Lord coming out of that child's mouth, right? Knock that off. <laughs> um, the list can go on, you guys, we need to end. But what does it take to have this happen? Families who value it families who value it and make it happen. Families value it. Families make it happen. It's not the job of the pastor. It is not the job of the elders. It is the families who raise the children in this way, who bring it into the church, who loose it in the church, and the family and the church carry and release the glory of God. Families value it. Families make it happen. A church family that values it, it takes that and makes it happen. It isn't going to happen with just you. Your kids will be blessed. You'll be doing a fine job. Will it permeate the church? Not if you've got resistant, apathetic hearts. I don't care how hard you try and pull it uphill. People will do something for a little while, and they will lower it down to the level. The bar will come down to the mundane. I don't know what you do with that, except pray for the fire of God to fall, right? I don't know what you do with that. I've lived it. It's very painful. Okay. You need leadership that values it and is willing to, to pick up these values and flow with them and experiment. Just experiment. Wow, that was a bummer. It didn't work at all. Like, I'm totally backfired. <laughs> We're in joy. We're just coming on with, you know, plan B, plan A. We know What's our principle again? How are we trying to do that? Oh, no wonder that was a blooper and didn't work, right? I mean, that, you just have people working it, right? 
the things I've shared here are dreams of mine. They're dreams. They're dreams. Like I say, I've tasted bits of them, but I see them in my soul. <laughs> They're dreams. I've had bits of success here and there for short seasons with my own children, with other people's children, in some church settings, right? I've learned that adults can't bring children where they're not. It isn't, you can be trying to say, but for the children's sake, and you go, and you're all, you adults, are, we're all in the way. We're all in the way. <laughs> you can't take children where you're not. Everything about raising children as revivalists has to flow from the heart, vision, and passion that God has been able to stir up in the older generation. You're their leaders. You are their leaders. Um, I think it's Wilder who has a book out. It's called Rare Leadership. It's not about the church. It's, but, but you think, but, but it's really interesting and, and beautiful. It's about the right-sided brain of leadership. But I think in terms of that saying, well, parents, you're the leaders of this church. They have the elders, but you're the leaders, right? Consider yourself the leaders in there what you're doing and nothing is going to happen that doesn't flow out of your vision out of your passion out of your heart that God wants to stir up otherwise the resistance honestly if if God if it's not if you're not bringing it in and and it's catching right I mean for God's sake if COVID can go and catch like wildfire around the world can't the idea and the seeds of God surpass that in impact right it's supernatural so it's so easy to settle down, settle for less than God wants to give, and stop running the race to be the one who gets the prize. Run the race to get the prize. All right. I hear parents all the time tell me about their disappointments and their frustration with church. What do we do if the church doesn't want this? What do we do if the pastors, I mean, this doesn't resonate with them at all. They'll never listen to this. They'll never hear this, right? This doesn't fit the model, right? What do we do? I hear this all the time. I see parents church hopping multiple times in the lives of their children, looking over the fence to the next pasture they think is a greener place, has greener grass. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You've got a win-win situation for church options. Will you just say that to yourself? I have a win-win situation for church options. Either be a unique Christian family that influences other families in an existing church setting or act in the image of your creator father and build what doesn't exist where you are. Those are win-win options. Be an influencer or be an entrepreneur in the right sense of spiritual sense. Influence your current church family or ask God to divinely draw together 20 families with like parenting values that will seek God to plant a discipling church. The world needs more churches. It needs more churches. Don't feel bad about that if you wanna do that route, right? It needs good churches. It needs more churches. So you're on God's good list, whether you do either one. You know, you're helping a church grow and, and you're doing it from the ground up because that's your call, or you're planning other churches that, you know, are filling the world. We need mega churches, house churches, small churches, churches in the workplace, churches in the inner cities, churches in senior care homes, churches everywhere. 
No more bemoaning what doesn't exist. Be a godly reformer with the grace and love, love, love of the Holy Spirit. Love does not push people in a direction they don't want to go. You'll resent them and they will resent you. If you feel that, don't do it. Choose your other option. But be a godly reformer with the grace and love of the Holy Spirit in your current church family, or be a godly reformer with the grace and love of the Holy Spirit by planning a church that can work together toward wonderful possibilities. There we are. So I wanna, I wanna leave it there. I want us to take this and just let it settle in your heart. I want us to take communion right now. And if you have to take off, because we're a little bit over five, do that. But if you can stay, I just want to take communion. I want to pray over you. And, um, and then those of you who anything bubbles up and you want to go on with the workshop side of all of this input, then we can schedule times for conversation and dialogue and troubleshooting and dreaming and whatever, right? So let me...